like to find out how to align your life with God's best, I'm Lisa Pulliam, founder of More To Be and host of this podcast. And I believe that the more we seek God and study His Word, the more He'll transform us to become like Jesus and equip us to impact this world with kingdom hope. That's what a life aligned with His best looks like, and that's our mission at More To Be, to become more like Jesus. This episode is sponsored by our More To Be Sisterhood. You can join the sisterhood at moretobe.com slash podcast and get access to a library of Bible study content and biblically-based coaching resources that will help you align your life with his best. On this episode, I am joined by Richard Stearns, who's currently serving as President Emeritus for World Vision U.S. after retiring at the end of 2018. He was the longest-serving president of World Vision with a tenure of 20 years. Prior to World Vision, Stearns held various roles with the Gillette Company, Parker Brothers Games, and Lennox. In 2021, he published his latest book, which we're going to talk about today, Lead Like It Matters to God, Values-Driven Leadership in a Success-Driven World. He is also the author of The Whole in Our Gospel and Unfinished. Stearns has traveled to more than 40 of the nearly 100 countries where World Vision works. He and his wife, Renee, have been World Vision donors since 1984. A lawyer by training, Mrs. Stearns also travels and speaks on behalf of World Vision, and the couple has five children. Welcome to the More To Be podcast, Richard. So glad to have you here with us. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah, so that is uh, quite a journey you've been through in your lifetime. What does it feel like to hear it being summed up in one paragraph? Well, yeah, (laughs) my whole life can be summed up in one paragraph, but you know, it was uh, an unusual journey because obviously um, working for a toy company and then uh, Lennox China, a luxury goods company, and then ending up at World Vision is kind of an unpredictable career path. But, you know, what I've learned about life is that it is unpredictable and uh, you never know where you're going to end up because in, in, in the course of a long career, your life takes some zigs and some zags, you know, mm-hmm. and it goes in different directions. So, uh, it's been quite a ride, and uh, it's fun to look back on it. Yeah. Uh, I When I cracked open your book, I thought, okay, what leadership skills am I going to get out of this, especially leading more to be and having women that come to me for coach training and, and then my family. But what I found when I started reading your book was um, a sort of comfort that I haven't experienced in a while. So before mm-hmm. life as we know it, Uh, My husband and I lived at a boarding school for 18 years, and we were surrounded by people that were many years older than us. And it would be quite common to sit around and hear stories of how they came to the boarding school and what they did when they were out on the missions field or what they did in their previous career. And in our new suburbia life, we're not surrounded with many people who have gone before us. And with COVID, we're surrounded by less people. Yeah. So there was so much comfort in hearing your story and the journey that God had you on from the time you were a little boy. Mm. Uh, And so I would love if you would just kind of share your story of how how does a a man arrive retired from working at World Vision, right? Like what were some of the highlights that you shared in the beginning of the book that would, I think, be a real encouragement to to our listeners? of God's faithfulness. Yeah, let me see if I can try to do that. Um, as I state in the book, you know, I 
I was raised in a, a kind of a broken, dysfunctional home. You know, my uh, uh, my parents, my father dropped out of the eighth grade. That was the highest level of education he had. My mother dropped out of high school. <clears throat> and so my sister and I were kind of adrift a in this uh, family that was, uh, you know, uneducated, knew nothing about college or education or anything of that nature. And to make it worse, my dad was an alcoholic. Um, this was his third marriage. Um, he had two failed marriages before that. And uh, my mother was his third uh, wife and they ended up divorced when I was about 10 years old. So uh, at age 10, you know, my life kind of fell apart as uh, uh, my father left, uh, the bank foreclosed on our home because my mother couldn't pay the mortgage. My father declared bankruptcy. And uh, there we were, my sister and I kind of moving from rental home to rental home over the next few years mm -hmm. uh, as my mother tried to, you know, get her feet on the ground and go out and get a job and, you know, earn an income to try to support her two kids. And <clears throat> so that was where I started, you know, and, yeah. and uh, you know, for some young people, that is a crushing kind of experience. But for me, it kind of had the opposite effect. It was like I was determined to overcome those circumstances. And uh, I often talked about my dad as a, he was a great role model because he modeled exactly what not to do with your life. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, don't get me wrong. I love my dad and, and he loved me. And uh, he was just a very flawed uh, person with uh, a, an alcohol problem. And that, that alcohol problem basically destroyed every dimension of his life. And uh, yeah. Uh, but I remember thinking as a young boy, you know, I'm not going to be like my dad. I'm going to get an education. I'm not going to become an alcoholic. I'm going to have a happy marriage. I'm going to uh, be successful in, uh, in my career. And uh, so that, that motivation, uh, I think when I was 13 years old when I wrote a, I wrote a letter on a typewriter back then to uh, all eight Ivy League colleges uh, asking for their catalogs. I was 13 and I was oh, dreaming... Wow. I was dreaming that maybe I could go to an Ivy League school because my sister, who was six years older, said, well, those are the best schools in the country, you know, those Ivy League schools. And, you know, if you can get into one of those. Um, so uh, anyways, at the end of the day, um, I applied to one of them, <laughs> Corn <laughs> Cornell University, which was only 50 miles from where I grew up. I grew up in, in Syracuse, New York, and uh, Cornell was in Ithaca. Cold place. So, I went to school upstate New York, so. Oh, yeah, it's a cold place where oh, people don't. Cold, uh, cold place. <laughs> well, I, I always like to brag about Syracuse when, you know, people in Chicago complain about the winter. And I, I'll say, you know, you have no idea, you know, that no. <laughs> Syracuse gets. Syracuse gets 10 feet of snow every year on average. That's an average. Yeah. Some, some years it's 15 feet, you know? And so when you grow up there, uh, you know, you just get, you, you know, you become a survivor, right? You, you yes. learn how to survive. Maybe that was part of my childhood too, but, yeah. <clears throat> but anyways, back to the story. Um, so I did get accepted at Cornell university and, uh, uh, my mother laughed at me and said, who's going to pay for that? You know, you, your father's a drunk and I don't have any money. And I just said, I don't know, but I'm going to get scholarships. I'm going to work. I'm going to, and I did, I got a scholarship from Cornell. I got a New York state scholarship. I, I had summer jobs every year. I drove a taxi. I worked in a grocery store. I cleaned golf clubs at a country club one summer. I cleaned toilets at a nursing home one, one summer. And, um, so anyways, Cornell, but you know, what happened to me is uh, I did not grow up in a Christian home. I was, my parents were nominally Roman Catholic, but 
because of the divorces, um, mm-hmm. they at that time they were excommunicated from the church, and so they never darkened the door of a church when I was a kid. And they tried to send my sister and I, you know, to mass on Sundays <clears throat> by ourselves, which was kind of weird. But mm-hmm. but anyways, by the time I was a senior at Cornell, I had kind of become an atheist. You know, I'd kind of rejected any mm-hmm. notion of faith and you know, education and science were my gods. And, uh, you know, I, I majored in neurobiology at Cornell. So I, I was very much in the sciences. And, um, and as you know, from reading the book, you know, uh, I had a life-changing event about a month before I graduated. I met a young woman who was a freshman at Cornell. We were on a blind date. She's upstairs right now, my wife of 46 years. I love <laughs> and, it. Uh, I we love met it. On a, we met on a blind date and all uh, her roommate fixed us up. And I thought, well, what the heck? I'm graduating in a month. What have I got to lose? And uh, her roommate warned me that she was a quote, Jesus freak. Uh, and I thought, well, that'll be a challenge, you know, to, to go on a date with a Jesus freak. So anyways, we went to a movie and then out to a coffee house and, um, um, you know, the conversation, we didn't have a lot in common. You know, she was from California. I was from New York. <laughs> she, was, she was a freshman. I was a senior. She was a Christian. I was an atheist. And uh, she, about midway through the coffee shop, she pulled out uh, a little tract from her purse, which was Campus Crusades for Spiritual Laws. And mm-hmm. she looked me in the eye and she said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I, I think I laughed. I said, really? You you're going to do this. Uh, you're, you're literally going to try to convert me on this blind date. Yeah. And, and she said, I'm very serious. May I continue? And uh, I said, yeah, well, go ahead. Take your best shot. I said, other people <laughs> have tried. Other people have tried. And so anyway, she proceeded to share the gospel of the Christian faith through that little tract and then asked me at the end if I was ready to commit my life to Christ. And I laughed again. And I said, I, I don't think so. You know, I said, that's very sweet. Uh, that's nice of you, but um, I, I don't think it's for me. Well, what what happened then is it kind of opened up the conversation from the superficial to the serious, right? And we started mm-hmm. to talk about life and faith and dreams and hopes. And I remember asking her what she was going to be when she grew up because she was 19. <clears throat> and she said, uh, oh, I'm going to be an attorney and I'm going to help the poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always known I want to help the poor in our country by being an attorney. And she said, what do you, and I said, well, that's very noble of you. And, and she said, what, you, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I've been accepted at the Wharton Business School. I'm going to make a lot of money and become a CEO. Uh, and she said, what a pathetic life goal, you know, to oh, make a lot wow. of money. She said, that's <laughs> kind of sad. And I said, well, you know, uh, and I told her a little bit about my background. And I said, you know, if you understood my family, you'd know why. I want to be successful where my parents were not. But anyways, something on that date clicked and um, we just kind of uh, started to see each other. We studied together for the next month. It was finals month and, uh, you know, slowly but surely we kind of uh, got infatuated with one another, even though it was totally impractical. Mm. And uh, so, uh, Long story short, we had a correspondence relationship that summer. She went back to California. I went back to New York, Syracuse to drive a taxi. And uh, we wrote letters almost every day. <clears throat> and um, that next fall, we we continued our relationship long distance. Pennsylvania, where I was, was about five hour drive from Syracuse. So I'd come up some weekends and she'd come down some weekends. But, uh, but anyways, in November of that year, we had a big argument. Whenever we talked about faith, we'd have a big argument. And uh, 
I would tell her that, you know, I didn't believe in the Easter bunny and I didn't believe in Santa Claus and I didn't believe in Jesus, you know, and, uh, and if she wanted to, that's fine. Why did I have to believe the same thing she believed? And we had another big argument. And she finally said, look, uh, I can't do this anymore. And I said, she said, I could never marry anybody that didn't share my beliefs. And I said, well, look, then you've got a choice to make. You can choose me or you can choose God. And I'm mm. still grateful today that God didn't strike me dead with a lightning bolt when I said that. But, mm. <clears throat> and she said, well, you just made my choice very easy. I choose God. And uh, mm. we broke up. And uh, that was, it was very sad because we loved each other, but it, it was just too big an obstacle between us. And, uh, you know, she made a courageous choice because we were in love and and she chose God over, over the man she loved. And, but that kind of set me on a quest, Lisa, mm -hmm. to try to learn more about how did I lose the love of my life to a man who died 2000 years ago? You know, wow. how did that happen? <clears throat> and uh, so I started, I went to the bookstore in Syracuse uh, over that Christmas break and I went to the religion section and I bought like a dozen books. Wow. I bought, you know, science and scripture, prophecy, uh, biblical archaeology, comparative religion. You know, I brought all of these different books. I started to read them voraciously. And, um, and over the next few months, um, I just kept reading and reading. I went back to school at Penn. And, uh, and when I finished my my, my homework and my assignments, I'd, I'd sit up and read C.S. Lewis and John Stott and mm. you know, all of these books on the Christian faith. And, and then one day, um, I think I'd read 50 books uh, over that period. I mean, I just could not stop reading them. Mm. <clears throat> and one day I closed, I think I was reading C.S. Lewis's book called Miracles, one of his lesser known books. And mm. I closed that book and I said, if I had to bet my life on whether the Christian story is true, what would I bet? And I said, I would bet that it's true. I believe, I now believe it's true. Wow. And, uh, and I got down on my knees right then. And I said, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing, but I want to live my life for you. I, I believe the story of the new Testament. I, I, I'm yours. I, mm -hmm. I want to go where you send me, do what you call me to do, be the person you called me to be, you know, but I don't know what to do next. Yeah. You know? and yeah. Amen. You know, amen. And, um, and I, I can honestly say from that moment, I never had another doubt about my faith. It was almost like <clears throat> I took the leap mm -hmm. and then God caught me uh, yeah. after I took that leap of faith. And I never had another doubt after that. Yeah. It's hitting me. <laughs> it's there's so many parallels in our story. I mean, I, a New Yorker who, I came to Christ in college who married the man who introduced me to Jesus. <laughs> uh, and the decision was like that of yes, Jesus. And so it's interesting how you can live life and uh, forget the powerful moments of faith. And so mm -hmm. I think I'm moved by your story because you could see Jesus working, right? Yeah. As, as you describe it. And yet, I'm sure for Renee at the time, she thought it was over. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the rest of the story is that, you know, obviously I called Renee and told her and she was skeptical at first, like, yeah, right. Yeah. You know, yeah. And uh, she did not want to be hurt again. And she wanted to make sure that this was real. And 
And I said, look, I didn't do this for you. I did this, you know, I was a scientist. I did this because the evidence told me it was true. Right. <clears throat> and unlike a lot of, a lot of people have emotional conversions, you know, yeah. they don't, they don't need all their questions answered. They, they just yeah. believe, you know, and, and I needed all my questions answered. I needed yeah. to understand science and evolution and apologetics and why this religion and not another religion. And what is the evidence for the resurrection? And, you know, I had to know all of this stuff before I could, you know, kind of step out on that. <clears throat> and I, I just became convinced. And I, I told her, I said, look, it's, it, it's not because of you, you, you motivated my quest, but I didn't do this just so we would get back together. And so right. we, we did get back together. We got married uh, a little over a year later. And when I graduated, uh, we both graduated uh, about the same time. <clears throat> and, you know, it's interesting because, you know, that, that first blind date, she said she would become an attorney and help the poor. She did become attorney, an attorney and help the poor in, wow. uh, in the Boston area. Went to Boston College Law School after we got married. I did become a CEO and make some money. Uh, I was a CEO at 33 at Parker Brothers Games. That's and then amazing. the CEO of Lennox after that, Lennox China, uh, the women listening will will appreciate that I'm one yes. of the few men that can go deep on, on a conversation about fine China and tableware. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Probably not the dream CEO job you were envisioning when you were 18 or 19 or 20. <laughs> no, I often joke to say, you know, <clears throat> like a lot of little boys, when I was eight or nine, I just dreamed of running a tableware company someday, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I, when I became CEO of Lennox, it was, I, I'd actually been unemployed. Uh, I had lost my previous job and I was looking for a new job and, and Lennox was the job that popped up and I applied and was interviewed and um, I knew nothing about fine China and, and crystal and, and nor did I want to know anything about fine right, China right, right. or crystal, but <laughs> But it was it was work. It was a great company, and uh, so I I went to work and I learned a lot about fine china. I tell some of those stories in my book about how I tried to turn around the the market share uh, declines that Lennox had experienced. Oh, wow. But um, but yeah, and then so you know again that blind date. So I became a CEO, and um, and then when World Vision called me, uh, I'd been at Lennox for eleven years, and. World Vision called me to essentially leave my corporate career, you know, take a huge pay cut and go into full-time ministry, helping the poor. And yeah. um, so in a way, Renee's dream to serve the poor uh, was partially fulfilled through me, you know, yeah. that, that in a way we could have never predicted that God was going to somehow use her to influence me. And then I would be called to World Vision. And so she became a very close partner. I mean, she wasn't an employee of World Vision, yeah. but we traveled together. We went overseas together. You know, she was kind of the heartbeat behind my leadership at World Vision because wow. it had been her passion since she was a child, you know? And uh, so uh, we both found kind of fulfillment and a ministry together, you know, through yeah. my 20 years at World Vision. I love it. And I would imagine that making it that long in a leadership position is impossible without a supportive spouse. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is. And, uh, you know, in fact, I tell the story in the book, but I did not want to go to world vision. I, I mean, I was like, really, you, Lord, you want me to take a 75% pay cut, commit career suicide, yeah. sell, sell the dream house that we bought here in Pennsylvania, this Pennsylvania 1803 farmhouse on five acres, Mm. And, um, 
and then you want me to go deeply into human suffering. You want me to go to refugee camps and garbage dumps where kids are foraging for food and famine zones. And it was like, there was nothing about that job I wanted. And, uh, mm. and it really, I mean, it was really a calling um, at a very deep level. And when I thought, I thought Renee would veto it. Cause I, I said to her, you know, we had five kids at that time. They were all in Christian school and we loved our school in Pennsylvania and we had friends. We were very involved in our church. She was the head of women's ministries at our church. And I said, I said, honey, you know, I mean, this world vision thing, we'd have to move to Seattle. We'd have to sell our house. You'd have to quit your, your ministry leadership at the church. We'd have to pull our five kids out of school. And there's this small issue of a 75% pay cut. And we have five kids to put through college. Yeah. And I thought she would say, well, we can't do that over my dead body. You know, I'm not going to let you pull my kids out of school. Mm -hmm. And of course, what Renee said is we need to be where God wants us to be. And if God mm. is calling us to world vision, we go, no questions asked. You know, that was her, she was a spiritual rock, you know, and I was a yeah. quivering, I was a quivering mass of insecurity. <clears throat> and um, so ultimately because of her backbone, you know, I finally said yes to the world vision job. I don't think I would have had I had any other spouse, probably. I don't think yeah. I would have, I, I would have gone. So she in very large part is, you know, gets the credit for, yeah. doing the right thing, I guess you might say, doing the right thing and listening yeah. to God's call on our life. And even though it meant a lot of hardship for her. Yeah. Yeah. And hardship, that's something you kind of glossed over some hardship when you were telling your story based on what I read in the book with the, the losing your job twice. Yeah. In a, in a short, it was under a two year period, right? If I remember. Yeah. It was about a year. You, you've got to work really hard to get fired twice in, in a single year. I think it might've been four, 14 months, but, um, but yeah, you know, that's one thing I, I talk about in the book because I don't know if you've ever heard the expression, never trust a leader without a limp. And uh, oh, I haven't, but that's what good. It, <laughs> what it means is that someone that hasn't failed in life, yeah, uh, never failed at anything. Um, there's something about failure that, really deepens your character. And for me as a believer, failing twice uh, deepened my relationship with the Lord, right? You know, yeah. when you're unemployed, I mean, you are really helpless. You, you, yeah. you, I was a CEO at 33, right? And so I was master of everything I could see. And I, I was, I had a thousand people working for me. My vice presidents were all 55 years old and I was 33. Wow. And, you know, as I say in the book, my wind was, my sails were filled with my own wind uh, for quite a bit uh, back in those days. And then all of a sudden you're fired and you're not managing anybody. You're not leading anything. You're not controlling a big group of people. People aren't jumping at your, your command like they were when you were the CEO. And it's just you and God. And, and it's like, you become, you go from becoming something from being somebody to becoming nobody. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, now, not literally, you're, of course, you're not nobody, but, but that's what it feels like. You yeah, know, I sure. was somebody and now I'm nobody. And, and I think what the work that God did with, with me during that period is uh, you need to be nobody for a while because mm -hmm. um, I'm not, I don't like the somebody you're becoming. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <clears throat> and so I had these, deep and long quiet times and spiritual times with God as I kind of cried out and said, why, you know, why are you doing this to me? Why has this mm. happened? And, uh, 
and then I found a job uh, the first time after about four or five months and started working again. And then nine months later, fired again. And uh, for different reasons, different situ situation. And my, my Renee said, whatever lesson God is trying to teach you, please learn it quickly, you know, because yeah. you need to get back to work. <laughs> you yeah. need to get back to work. And, and I, you know, and I, I really identified with Moses at that moment, you know, Moses who, uh, uh, you know, he, he didn't want to do what the Lord called him to do. He didn't want to do it. Uh, and the people of Israel, it took him 40 years in the wilderness to learn the lesson. And Renee said, I hope it doesn't take you 40 years to learn whatever God's teaching you. <clears throat> so I finally, uh, as, as you know, in the book, I talk about kind of a seminal moment where I realized what God was trying to do is get my attention. And he was trying to say, it's not about your will. It's about my will for you. It's not about your ambitions, Rich. It's about my ambitions for you. And I need you to be totally submitted and available to me. And uh, I remembered a verse from my catechism. Uh, there was a question, why did God make me? And I had to memorize that answer when I was five or six years old before my first communion. And the answer was, you know, God made me to know him, to love him and to serve him in this world. Mm -hmm. um, and that was it. And I, I just realized like a lightning bolt that it didn't matter what my title was. It didn't matter who I worked for or how much my income was. I could know God, love him and serve him in this world wherever I was. I could do it unemployed. I could do it as a CEO. I could do it as a taxi driver. I, you know, it didn't depend on my circumstances that that was my one job uh, mm. to know, love and serve Christ in the world. And so when I went back to work, finally at Lenox, I was so grateful to be back employed. I was a division president to begin with at Lenox, one of their small divisions. But I started every day by saying, Lord, I am not here to sell fine china or figurines or crystal. I am here to know you, love you, and serve you in this place uh, today. Show me how I can do that. And I prayed that prayer every day <laughs> at mm, Lenox. It's so good. And I mean, that really, really spoke to me. I I've been highly influenced by Henry Blackaby's Experiencing God Bible mm -hmm. Study. And his expression is, Lord, I, I'm not interested in what your will is for my life. Show me your work that I may join you in it. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was a different way of thinking about that mantra. And sometimes yeah. our mantras can become a little stale. And yeah. so in this season of my life, like how, how can I know you, Lord, love you, Lord, and serve you, Lord, where you have me, even when it feels like chaos, mm -hmm. even when I feel torn in so many different directions. Uh, and so that I just kind of sat with that when mm -hmm. I, when I read you saying that, and then um, the visual of your interaction with your former secretary describing how it was different when you were at Lenox mm -hmm. than what she was experiencing after you left. And I, that, that left me with, okay, so how am I leaving where I've been with a mark of the aroma of Christ, mm -hmm. of his presence? Like, what are people getting more of? Are, are they getting, you know, more of my misery or my complaining or my critical spirit or my mm -hmm. ambition or my striving? Or are they getting more of Jesus through their time rubbing mm -hmm. shoulders with me? That, that was kind of where I was left mm -hmm. with that. Well, you know, 
Lisa, I used to have a Bible on my desk um, in my secular jobs, and I always kept a Bible on my desk. And the reason for that was it, it, I wanted, I didn't want to be incognito as a Christian. I wanted people to know that I was a Christian. And that was partially for, for my benefit, because I knew that if I was out, quote, in the workplace as a Christian, that I would behave differently because I knew people would be watching, right? They'd be yeah. watching, you know, oh, this guy's the Christian, right? You know, let's see, let's see if he's, if he's any different than anybody else. And so <clears throat> partly it was to keep me on my good behavior because if mm -hmm. I think a lot of people go into the workplace incognito, right? I'm not going to tell anybody I'm a Christian. They'll make fun yeah. of me or they'll, they'll ridicule me or I'll get, you know, whatever. And I was just the opposite. I said, I better tell people I'm a Christian because that's going to keep me on my toes. That's going to keep me, mm -hmm more obedient to the Lord because I know people are watching. And so that's why I did it. And as you know, in the book, I, I, I have the section titled, you have this one job. And one of the other things I learned about my faith during those times of unemployment was that my real job, my real job was to be an ambassador for Christ. Mm -hmm. And um, that's for every Christian your real job, wherever you are, if you're at home, uh, raising the kids in your neighborhood, you know, interacting with other parents at the school, um, whether you're the CEO of a big company, your one job is to be an ambassador for Christ mm -hmm. wherever God has put you. Yeah. And so if you think about it that way, you know, I, I, I draw a comparison to that TV show, The Americans, where the, you know, there's this, uh, Russian couple that are spies and they're embedded in the United States in the 1980s and they run a travel agency, right? But that's their, that's their cover job. They're really Russian spies. And at night they're doing all kinds of mayhem and they're killing people and they're stealing Pentagon secrets. But by day they're running a travel agency. And so, you know, I thought, well, what a great metaphor that as Christians, our one job is to, well, to know, love and serve Christ in this world, but also to be his ambassador. And, um, no matter where you work, you are there, you are the presence of Christ in that place. And you may be, you know, the, 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 the phrase, you may be the only Jesus people ever see. Yeah. Uh, and, and so if you think of your job that way, you know, when I was at Lenox, I thought I'm Christ's ambassador at Lenox. And yeah, I also happen to sell dishes. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I want to be good at selling dishes. I want to be excellent at selling dishes. I, but I want to behave in such a way that I reflect well on Christ. And I, I, I draw from this, what I would call my life verse in scripture, um, 2 Corinthians 5.20, yeah, that says, yeah. we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God is making his appeal through us. Mm -hmm. And just think about that. Yeah. that. We, all Christians, are Christ's ambassadors and God is actually making his appeal to the world yeah. through us. If you work at Amazon, God is making his appeal to your coworkers at Amazon through you. Right. If you're in the community, God is making his appeal to other Christian parents or non-Christian parents in the school system, to the teachers, to the administrators. Um, he's making his appeal through you. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. If you're a cab driver, he's making his appeal to the world through you. And that's, that gives significance to our lives that is far more important than the significance we derive from whatever's on our business card. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, 
you know, at one point at World Vision, I had this idea that we would eliminate titles and everyone would have a business card that simply said servant of the most high. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and and uh, we never did it, but I thought it was kind of a neat idea that, it, you know, yeah, I was the president. I had vice presidents. They had directors. But basically, we're all the same. We're all servants yeah. of the most high God. And uh, maybe that's what we should put on our business card. But um, so it, it's. Uh, yeah. So my message for anybody listening out there is uh, you may be in a place where you're feeling I've got a horrible job or I don't have a job and I need one. Um God is using you. God will use you. You're his ambassador. That's your job. Um, that's an important job. And, yeah. um, and you can do that, whatever your circumstances. I love it. It makes me think of um, a passage that I keep coming back to again and again, Ephesians 4, where, where Paul talks about uh, embrace, you know, the calling that you have been given, live out the calling that mm -hmm. that you're worthy of and the word um there's two words in that there's called and there's calling and one is kaleo and the other is klesis and the, the klesis means um the invitation uh the divine invitation to embrace the salvation of god and, and that that is our calling and to me that just resonates with what you're saying this idea that you know, we're, we're, we're often looking for our calling to manifest in our career or our title, like you're, you're mm -hmm. saying, but if our calling was simply embracing our salvation and then responding to that in love, you know, loving the Lord, our God, serving mm -hmm. him uh, and making him known, it, this ties in with that. Well, then, you know, we already have our title. It's ambassador. Right. It, right. It, it's these two things that go hand in hand. And I feel like with it, it gives this freedom for for change. It gives freedom to say this season is is done. This job is done, whether it was done by being fired or let go or done because you chose to move on. Mm -hmm. It gives freedom for people to move on. And, you know, I've coached a lot of women who have felt since birth I was supposed to do or in mm -hmm. high school, I knew that this is going to be my outcome. And I've often given them the challenge. I'm like, okay, so how is God manifesting his gifts and talents in you through the experiences you've been through to step into a new way of carrying out? And really, you give me the word, that ambassadorship mm -hmm. uh, uh, going, going forward. Um, so when you like moved into world vision, you eventually came to the place of saying it's it's time now for this season to end. How did you make that decision? Well, old age helped. Uh, <laughs> the uh, you know um, so as you said, I was the longest serving president in World Vision's seventy year history, and uh, I served actually longer than the founder did. Wow. Um, so I'm also a believer that. You know, leaders need to reinvent themselves every few years because like any, like anything else, you can get stale in, in a particular job. You can, and if you don't reinvent yourself, you know, you, you get stuck in a job that you're not doing very well anymore because things have changed and you haven't changed. <clears throat> and so uh, I think one of the hardest things leaders have to do is, is try to reinvent themselves, you know, that, yeah. so, you know, if I look at my career at World Vision, the first, uh, five or six, seven years I was there, I embraced uh, the cause of HIV and AIDS in Africa. And, okay. and that became like a passionate crusade of mine throughout the World Vision Network. 
and also uh, imploring the American church who wanted nothing to do with HIV and AIDS because it was part of the culture war, right, in America. Mm. Uh, so my goal was to turn the tide in the American church and to get American Christians to care about AIDS and the devastation it was having on men, women, and children in Africa. And um, so for seven years, I threw myself into that cause and we raised, you know, you know, probably a billion dollars to fight AIDS in Africa during that time. And we got government grants and we influenced Congress on passing the, uh, the AIDS relief plan under President Bush. And, uh, um, but, you know, after that, kind of ran its course, you know, it was like, well, who am I now? And, you know, what, 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 what yeah. is my leadership role now? And, uh, and it was about then that I started writing the book, The Hole in Our Gospel, you know, because I felt, I really felt passionate about reaching American Christians with this message that um, believing is not enough. God wants more than your belief. He wants to mobilize you. He wants Christians to care about poverty and justice and to go out and change the world. He wants us to, to be his ambassadors in the world and, and to change the world. He, he wants us to influence um, every sector of society, uh, every aspect of our world. But scripture always has a preferential uh, treatment uh, for the poor, right? The poor and the downtrodden. And uh, Jesus talked about the poor often, uh, even going back as far as Deuteronomy, you know, Deuteronomy 15 said there should be no poor among you. And um, so poverty and justice issues were uh, just my passion. And I just felt that evangelical Christianity was downplaying those issues and really just talking mostly about evangelism. And, mm. and I believe in evangelism. I, I believe in it, but it's a both and, not an either or. And mm -hmm. uh, so I wanted to send a wake-up call to the American church on the importance of being obedient to the scripture's call to care for the least of these in our world. And so that book became The Hole in Our Gospel. And to everyone's surprise, including my wife and my publisher, it was named Christian Book of the Year in wow. 2000, 2010. It was the first book I'd ever written. Uh, Max Lucado had become a friend. You know, He's an uh. incredibly prolific Christian author. And he said, you're the only... Yes person I know who every book they've written was selected as Christian book of the year. And, uh, oh, and, I, and so I said, funny. Max, I've only, I've only written one Max. And, and, you know, he, he's been selected two or three times, I think for Christian book of the year, but. And his um, book, um, not to interrupt you, his book, no wonder they call him the savior was the catalyst for me becoming mm. a believer. Oh, wow. Yeah. Max yeah. is, Max is one of these guys, you know, who is the real deal. Um, you know, there's a lot of Christian leaders that sometimes disappoint us when we peek behind the curtain and find out what's really going on. And that happens yeah. too often. Max, in my opinion, is the real deal. I mean, he, he is what you see. He is what mm. you read. He's an incredibly gifted and godly man who I'm privileged to call friend. But, um, but anyway, so that kind of reinvented me when I wrote that book, because all of a sudden, you know, before that, nobody really knew who the president of World Vision was. And all of a sudden, you know, I was kind of on the radar screen. And so I got a lot of speaking engagements then, you know, people calling me, speak at my conference, speak at my church, speak at mm. this. And so for the next six or seven years, I, I was on kind of an external speaking tour trying to raise awareness and support for poverty in the U.S. And, um, you know, World Vision revenues tripled during that period. I mean, wow. we went from 
about 400 million a year to 1.2 billion a year in the US. And uh, we were growing globally as well. Um, believe it or not, World Vision today is over $3 billion uh, globally mm. in donations. You know, So it's, uh, some would argue it's the biggest Christian organization on the planet, oh, wow. um, 40,000 employees. And, but so I reinvented myself kind of as a prophetic voice during that next seven years. You know, this is a guy that had been selling fine China a few years earlier. Right. So, so I had to find my sea legs, you know, I had to really understand my subject matter, which took a few years to do and a lot of travel. Uh, I estimate I traveled 3 million air miles during my time at World Vision. That's amazing. And then, uh, and then my last season at World Vision, um, I started to embrace the, the refugee cause because uh, refugees, especially uh, provoked by the Syrian civil war was a terrible tragedy, you know, in our world. And we, as you probably know, we have more refugees today in the world than, than even after World War II, which was yeah. the height of refugee migrations. And so refugees is a huge problem. And, and that, that became my passion in the, the last five or six years I was at World Vision. But how did I decide to leave? I just felt like it's time. I'm, I was 68 when I retired. Um, I had groomed a, a younger person, Edgar Sandoval, uh, had come in to serve as chief operating officer, and I thought he was ready to step up. And so, long story short, I notified the board that I intended to step down, I think in two years, gave them kind of two years to think about the search and the mm -hmm. succession and all of that. They did end up uh, selecting Edgar Sandoval as the, the next president. And that was kind of cool because Edgar is Latino and uh, he was born in the U.S. but grew up in Guatemala and Venezuela wow. and came to the United States when he was 18 with no English, you know. So his story was kind of the story of the immigrant, the refugee, the poor uh, growing up in a developing country. And, um, uh, and you know, Edgar is a walking example of the potential in every child, you know, and uh, here's this little boy from Latin America that becomes uh, a division president at Procter and Gamble, gets a Wharton MBA, and then ends up as the leader of World Vision. So he's got an amazing story. Uh, you ought to have him on your, your yeah, as you say, well. part two of what God does. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I just felt it was time and I didn't want to be that guy where the board is starting to whisper in the hallways, when's yeah. the old boy going to retire? You know, I mean, he, you know, he's past his sell-by date and it's time for him. Yeah. To move on. So I wanted right. to kind of nip that in the bud and say, well, look, I'm just going to, I'm just going to make this decision and, and do this. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's important to have that context of, of the seasons uh, and, mm -hmm. and what it looks like to see God work while you still stay in the same position, but also I really appreciated your, your reinvent yourself piece. I have found in my own work, a more to be will be 10 years or is depending on when this comes out, celebrates 10 years in um, September, 2021. And, you know, the, the, okay, what's next? Mm -hmm. Where were we going? How did we get here? And, and what is next? And when it's something that God drops in our lap and we didn't even know that we were gonna do it in the first place, it sort of feels like we're just buckled on for his ride. And yet at the same yeah. time, we could be intentional about saying, okay, well, Lord, what is next? And, and I know there's women and potentially men who are listening, who are trying to figure out how do I navigate this new season? 
You know, one of my greatest, maybe most profound learnings during my career is is this that when you know when I landed at World Vision, I've already described how you know I was saying to God, you know, anybody but me, don't send me. I I can't do this. I'm selling fine china. I don't know anything about poverty. <clears throat> um, but here I was, you know, at World Vision, and I remember my first day in the office, and I was just terrified. I, I yeah. felt so inadequate, and I, I'm guessing that everybody out there listening has at one time or another, and maybe right now, felt totally inadequate for the job that they have or the role that they have. They feel overwhelmed by the demands or the pressures, and um so I kind of cried out to God that first moment. I said, Lord, it took all the courage I could muster to just to show up today. I mean, I have no idea what I'm doing. This is a very important ministry. I don't want to mess it up. I don't, but I don't know what to do. And Lord, you put me here and um, you better do something because I don't know what to do. Yeah. I've been, I've been obedient. Now you have to do the rest. It was, that was kind of my conversation with God. And what I kind of heard in my spirit was God saying, that's exactly where I want you, mm-hmm. helpless and completely dependent on me. Now watch and learn, see what I do. And, mm-hmm. and it, it was such a release for me to, to say that all I have to do is show up and do my best. And, mm-hmm. and I can just trust God for the outcome. I can just trust God for the outcome because um, I've decided to totally depend on him. And I think that applies to a secular career as well. All, all God asks you to do in, in whatever your, your career or job role is, is just show up every day and do your best and be a good ambassador for him mm. and let the chips fall where they may. Um, and that allowed me to weather horrible bosses, you know, difficult times, getting fired twice, um, just, just knowing that, Lord, it's not my will, but thy will. This is, mm. I've given you my career. So mm. if, if it gets messed up, I've given it to you, it's messed up. You know, I'm hoping that you're going to unmess it, you know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and right. maybe show me, show me what's next and, and, and those kinds of things. So that it, it's, it's very liberating to, to just feel that you don't have to perform constantly, you know, to, yeah. to earn your worth. Um, I talk in the book uh, about the importance of excellence. I think all Christians should work with diligence and excellence and do our best. Mm-hmm. But look, on a scale of one to 10, some of us are nines, some of us are threes, some of us are fives uh, in terms of our capabilities. Um, all God asks of us is to do our best with what he's given us, you know, mm-hmm. do the best with what I've given you and be that ambassador and, and see if I won't use you uh, in remarkable ways in, in your sphere of influence and, and, your, mm-hmm. and your life. And, uh, and that's liberating, you know, that because yeah. when, when you've got a tough boss who is making you feel inadequate, yeah. you know, you just say, well, all right, I hear that. And you have to deal with that boss, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. But you want to hear the Lord in your other ear saying, I love you. You're a precious child of God. You're my ambassador in that place just continue doing the best you can and trust me for the outcome. And if you get fired, it's because I've got something else for you. Yeah. Um, you know, there's another chapter uh, that yeah. hasn't been written yet. Yeah. And, uh, and that can be very liberating and takes some of the, you know, think about my job, Lisa, at World Vision. You know, 
people dying every day in poverty mm -hmm. and, and hunger, and it's my job to save them, right? And talk about feeling overwhelmed or yes. inadequate or, or carrying a burden on you that is uh, you're unable to bear. The only way you bear a burden like that is to say, Lord, you love those children who are at risk more than I do, you know, so yeah. use me, Lord, but it, it, it's, it, it's you, you know, yeah. you're the one that will act and I'm just here to be faithful. I'm just here to be your, your ambassador uh, in this work and, uh, yeah. you know, compensate for my incompetence, you know, yeah. compensate for my mistakes. Uh, I'll do my best. I'll show up. You know, the, I tell the Mother Teresa story where she said, you know, God did not call us to be successful. He yeah. called us to be faithful. Yeah. He called us to be faithful. So if you're focusing your life on being successful, you're focused on the wrong thing. Yeah. Focus on being faithful. You may be successful, but it's more important to be faithful mm -hmm. uh, to your, to God and to being his ambassador. And if you yeah. do that, you can sleep at night. A hundred percent. And everything you just said totally resonates with where I am as a mom, mm -hmm. which is crazy. So anyone who's listening, who's struggling in their motherhood needs to go back, replay and think about your role as a mom, not as the head of world vision, because the same exact things you just said, you, you even said, you know, at risk children, right? Mm -hmm. And and for some reason, I think a lot of moms and maybe dads too also have this sense of like, I'm supposed to prevent the problem. I'm mm -hmm. supposed to rescue from the problem. And, and we can't, we can just be faithful with what God has given us to do it to him, unto him. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of moms right now that need to listen to what you just said. I've, I've got a, I've got a very encouraging story for moms or dads. So we had five kids and, uh, you know, people say, why did you have five kids? And my only answer is it seemed like a good idea at the time, but, um, <laughs> um, but my youngest son, uh, Pete, when he was 15, uh, you know, uh, it's a miracle. I didn't like strangle him to death. You know, he was, he was a difficult teenager and somehow we were just butting heads constantly. You know, he knew how to push my buttons and I guess mm -hmm. I know how to, knew how to, how to push his buttons. And, and Renee and I literally threw up our hand. We didn't know what to do with this young kid. You know, 15, he was angry. He was depressed. He was, he lashed out, you know, you tell him to do his homework and he'd scream at you. And, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, and I, we have to take some of the responsibility that obviously we were doing some things that didn't help either, I suppose. Um, but he, you know, he went away on a short-term missions trip to Mexico with his youth group. Wow. And I rolled my eyes because as the president of World Vision, it's like really these short-term missions trips, you know, the last <laughs> thing people need in Mexico is cheap labor or free labor, you know, that, you know, while you're painting a house down there with your youth group, the painters are standing there unemployed, you know? Yeah. And uh, so I was kind of skeptical of this trip, but, you know, it, it was profound in his life. He rededicated his life to the Lord. He was like a different kid when he came mm. back from that mission trip. And today he's a pastor. Wow. Uh, uh, he went to Wheaton College, got a master's in theology, became a pastor, and he's at a church in the Chicago area yeah. of 4,000 people. Um, wow. He's one of the senior leaders at that church. And Renee and I look at each other and say, how did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did that? Yeah. And, and the answer is, well, the Lord, you know, and we, we were in prayer and we just stayed the course with, um, with every one of our kids, right? You know, yeah. that yeah. All, all you can do is the best you can do. And and just, you know, kept them in prayer. And 
So there, there, there might be light at the end of the tunnel if you've got a difficult teenager. I, yeah. I've never met a teenager that wasn't difficult. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I well, was a difficult teenager. Yeah. I was a difficult teenager too. I, I might have uh, taken the title on that one for sure, yeah. <laughs> as many of us have, right? Well, I mean, it's just good. It's good to hear your stories. It's good to hear how you've learned God lessons, and it's hope. It's hope giving to to think about it that way, um, and to understand that. I think it's really, to you know, your story exemplifies that what we see on the outside doesn't always reflect the journey that it took to get there mm-hmm. uh, in terms of we, we can we can pass judgments pretty easily. And your ability to lead and accomplish what has been accomplished is to me, the God's grace and equipping power and carrying you through difficult times, um, yeah. but also rewarding yeah. ones too. I mean, there, there were lots of wins in those, some of those hardships. Yeah. Well, and yeah. you know, there's an old saying behind every great man, there's a great woman and a surprised mother-in-law. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So uh, I think we need to have Renee on the podcast, actually. You I really would like, do. You really uh, do. She'd be a great guest. I would love to have her on and, and hear her story and her version of it. it would be fantastic. And also what God has done in her life as she mm-hmm. supported you. I'm sure, that was not easy at times. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's, I think it's especially hard there are a lot of women who have husbands that have very visible or prominent jobs. Right. And you feel like you're living under the shade of somebody else's tree, you know, and it's hard to, I think, especially of pastors wives who, you know, their husband is the one up there preaching every Sunday, getting all the accolades and, and, uh, and uh, they're getting criticized for what they wore to church or whatever, you know, you know, and, and they're, they're kind of living in their husband's shadow and that, you know, that's a tough place to be. And uh, it's, uh, I think, you know, uh, a lot of women have, have experienced that at one point or another in their yeah. lives. And, uh, you know, today, obviously, many more women are in very prominent jobs, and we're moving toward a more equality, you know, between yeah. the, the, the genders. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's difficult, I think, you know, uh, for a woman's own self-esteem and yeah. sense of worth, you know, when they have to ask the question, who am I and why am I always defined by the person I'm married to? Um, yeah. And well, um, so Renee, Renee could talk about that, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, might have to have her on as, yes, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Well, Rich, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to close us in prayer uh, as we wrap up today. Sure, Lisa, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we just thank you for this conversation. And uh, I just pray for those that are listening, Lord, who, who may feel adrift in their careers, in their lives, who may feel that they don't have a sense of purpose or calling, uh, who may feel overwhelmed or inadequate or unable to, uh, to, to do the things that they feel that uh, you're calling them to do. Uh, Lord, give them uh, strength. Uh, give them a vision of your love and uh, that your only expectation of them is that they be faithful. Uh, You did not call them to be successful, Lord, in any secular definition of the word. You just called them to be faithful to your truth, to your values, uh, to your calling on their life, to be your ambassadors wherever they may live and work. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And remind everybody, Richard, where they can find your book. Yeah, so it's Lead Like It Matters to God, Values-Driven Leadership in a Success-Driven World. And 
we didn't talk too much about the book today, but we did talk about the themes. But basically, the thesis of the book is that what God cares about is your character. And so I talk about 17 values that describe Christian leadership and uh, or just Christian ambassadors, right? If you're mm -hmm. an ambassador for Christ, you're, you should be characterized by these 17 qualities. And there's a chapter on each one, but it's available at Amazon or wherever books are sold. There's an audio version that I spent several days trying to record in a studio. I love and, it. And uh, it's available on Kindle as well. So, so good. Yeah, we didn't get into any of the values or the character stuff, which is so important to me, but I feel like we really gave our listeners the reason why they should listen to you. <laughs> yeah. The context of where, where you're coming from. So thank you for being with us today. And I pray that y'all have enjoyed listening to the More To Be podcast and that you've experienced a fresh encounter with God and his word during your time with us. If you are ready to take the next step in aligning your life with God's best, but not sure what that looks like, head over to moretobe.com slash align to take our quiz and find out. You can also join the sisterhood at moretobe.com slash podcast and get access to our library of resources. May you continue to think biblically and live transformed to be more like Jesus 